You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Welcome, Father Paul, to the program. It's always good to have you. Thank you. We are excited because today is another discussion about locality. One of the things, Father Paul, that you stress is the way in which Scripture takes everyday things around you, location, objects, things that are part of the mundane everyday setting, and it assigns meaning to them. And so once you understand that that's what's going on, everything becomes important. The details become important. What is the meaning of that locality or what is the meaning that scripture is assigning? So we're happy and excited today to get your take on Ur of the Chaldeans and what it means and how it functions. Ur of the Chaldeans is a striking example. The only parallel to it is Ararat or the mountains of Ararat. In both cases, these appear only four times throughout Scripture. I mean, it's stunning. Four times, and yet the first three are back-to-back in Genesis 11.28, 11.31, and 15.7, and then nothing at all about this Ur of the Chaldeans until Nehemiah 9.7. So, There is something about it. Number one, and most importantly, is that Chaldeans is a technical name for the Neo-Babylonians, starting with the 6th century BC. So in the times of the scriptural Abraham, the Chaldeans were not around. And the Chaldeans are in the prophets, earlier prophets, later prophets, the Neo-Babylonians under whom the Judahites were exiled. So it's very striking that the Bible uses four times Ur of the Chaldeans. Obviously, this is intentional, but what is the intention? Let's begin with the beginning, that the children of Abraham end up exiled in the same area of origin of their forefather. The intended close connection can be seen in the retrojection of Chaldeans to the times of Abraham. Chaldeans are the Neo-Babylonians, as I mentioned. And that area is the area from which the exiled will be rescued, but they will be rescued, according to Isaiah, as the children of Abraham and Sarah. And we'll come back to that. Abraham and Sarah. I'll mention Isaiah that it's a tent. It's not a city with the stakes and so on. For the time being, the root of the promise made to Abraham is the same as that of the salvation of his children from Chaldea. He came from the east to the earth of the promise, and they are promised in Isaiah to move again from the east to the earth of the promise. However, and that is very important, Abraham's and Sarah's earth, where their kin reside, is Haran, Padam Aram, the earth of the two rivers, which is, if you like, upper Mesopotamia. And this is very clearly reflected in the stories of the marriage of Isaac and Jacob. They have to find wives from Padan Aram. 
But on the other hand, the earth of Padan Aram is the earth of the multiple nations mentioned time and again in the stories of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, as well as in the stories of the patriarchs. So it's around that area that we have all the nations up to the Hittites, way up near the mountains of Ararat. The intimate link between the children of Abraham and those nations is sealed in that very impressive story in Genesis 23, where Sarah and Abraham and their children are buried in the land of the promise, yet in a field whose proprietor is Ephron the Hittite, the Hittites being the farthest among the scriptural nations, the northernmost to the west of the mountains of Ararat, where the sources of the two rivers lie. I speak more in detail about that when I deal with the mountains of Ararat. The importance of the Hittites in the purview of the scriptural authors is that besides this very important Ephraim the Hittite who meets Abraham, we have Uriah the Hittite who was the top general in the army of David. We all know the story of his wife Bathsheba with David. So Uriah, practically, whom David had killed, is the reason behind David's punishment and ultimately the exile of the citizens of his kingdom, Israel as well as Judah. Remember, David was the king of Judah and Israel, their exile into the land of the Chaldeans. So here again, as I keep saying, anyone who knows the scriptures well makes immediately these connections or when one gets to Uriah the Hittite one cannot miss that before him there was Ephraim the Hittite so this importance with the connection with the nations is reflected in Isaiah 42 Isaiah 49, Isaiah 66, where the nations are included in the rescue of the exiles. The exiles do not come back to the earth of the promise on their own, but including the nations with them. And ultimately, the entire intentionality is sealed in the Ketubim, which is the last part of Scripture, at the other end of Scripture in the text of Nehemiah. Let me say Genesis is the first book of scripture. Nehemiah is way at the end. It's the third book before the last in scripture. And out of the real blue sky we hear, and I need to read it, Thou art the Lord, the God who didst choose Abram, notice, back to Genesis, and bring him forth out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and give him the name Abraham, very important. And thou didst find his heart faithful before thee, and didst make with him the covenant to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and thou hast fulfilled thy promise, for thou art righteous. This text is very important. Number one, we said we have Ur of the Chaldeans, but then we have the express mention of the change of name from Abram to Abraham. Now, this happens in Genesis chapter 17, which is connected with the covenant of circumcision, whereby under the tent of Abraham, we have also included the children of the stranger and of the slave. And this is very clear in that in the following verse in Nehemiah, we have a direct mention of the covenant made with Abraham. But then 
if one goes back to chapter 17, not only Abraham, but also Sarah, their name is explained in conjunction with their being father of many nations and mother of many nations. And the fullness of the nations in Nehemiah is reflected in that we have six nations, but then where is the seventh? You know, number seven is the totality. Number seven is precisely the Chaldeans that are mentioned with Ur of the Chaldeans. To the ear, we have the inclusion of all nations together with Abraham. My conclusion is that the Syrian wilderness, where promise, punishment, and salvation beyond punishment take place, is the locale of the scriptural story. It's not just one city. Ur of the Chaldeans is at the other end of the Fertile Crescent. At that time, Ur was at the sea. And then you have a full crescent that ends up down into the wilderness of Judah and the wilderness of Egypt. That is why ultimately what is taught by the Bible, it's a story, it's a parable, is that the Ur, and Ur means the city. Remember, Urushalayim, Jerusalem. It is the Ur, ultimately, only when transformed through salvation becomes an oasis around which one has the pasture for the sheep. This is how salvation is implemented. Again, the sheep are found in Isaiah and in Ezekiel 34 and 38. So the total story is an invitation, which we saw already in Genesis 11, to the human beings who are always prone to glorify their ego by making big buildings with their own hands, to understand that real life and real peace happens around the oasis, the garden, as we see in chapter 2. So it's not a question of moving from the city in the desert and so on. It's a mental attitude to always remember that it is only in the totality of all the human beings being together. The city is exclusive by definition. Citizen. Okay? And you have walls around it and the rest are outsiders. Whereas the pasture in the wilderness is inclusive because all the sheep, even the sheep of different flocks, share the same sun, moon, and rain. And there are no factual enemies, since even if there were, they are to be loved as brothers are. So the different sheep of the different flocks in the wilderness technically live together from the same source. And I would like to end with this statement in Matthew, the book of books. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. Notice how the evil are mentioned before the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So technically you are no better than the Gentiles. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And again, you know, friends, this does not happen 
in fact, actually, it does happen, but it does not happen except in a setting similar to the setting of the Syrian wilderness. So again, I hope I answered your question and your point that you brought up at the beginning, that it's not only words, but also their position in Scripture, which is very important. And to be a child of Abraham, we have to accept this. And remember, in the same Gospel of Matthew, God challenges the people by telling them, you say you're children of Abraham, well, he can make out of these stones children of Abraham. And that's a play, friends. The stones are the stones of the building. So the blessing of God is reflected in his destroying the building as he does in Genesis 10 and sending you back to the open land as in Ezekiel 48 where all the sheep are gathered around this fictional city whose name is the Lord is there. So wherever you are, it's your mental attitude that moves you from your mental city to God's open pasture in the wilderness. Building off your last point, Father, about moving out of the city and doing some research on Ur and seeing what archaeologists say, it seems like even at the time of the Babylonian captivity, Ur was already an ancient city. I mean, the city existed since the third millennium. So it was as old to the captives in Babylon as Rome is for us today. So it's already an ancient, ancient city. Also, the last of the Babylonian kings were putting in some investment to revitalize the city and to revitalize some of the monuments right before the Persians took over. So during the Babylonian captivity, it looks like Ur started gaining in prominence as an ancient city, and the rulers of Babylon were trying to make it look even more prominent. Is it significant that Abraham was one of the so-called original inhabitants of Ur who got out and just happened to be the ancestor of those who were captive in Babylon when everyone in Babylon was making a big deal about Ur. Definitely. Again, let's put two and two together. At the apogee, apex of Ur, the ancient city, Abraham was asked to leave and go to whatever open land God will show him, and the interesting thing is that in Genesis, and I stress that, when he left Ur, he went to Haran before moving down to Palestine. So your point is well taken. It's the movement out. And I'm convinced, as I stressed in my book, that the whole message is already in Genesis 1 through 11 before the mention of Abram who becomes Abraham, in the story of Genesis 11 about the city and the tower and so on. I mean, it's classic. God intervenes to stop the building of the city and the tower. It's amazing. And again, he forces the nations to spread around. So these things, like what you just said, the original hearers knew. Our readers today, you and I may not know. But it doesn't matter because everything is integrated in the story, in the choice of words, the mention of the Chaldeans. And, so. and that would bring me to say, as Jeremiah told the exiles, settle in Babylon, build houses, plant vineyards. It doesn't make any difference. Just settle and live with those Babylonians. 
And that's why we know from history that the Jews did not come back to the land as usually falsely we are told again and again. No, they settled. And how many times I repeat that the most impressive factuality is that Alexandria, the city of Alexander, was the capital of Egypt, which is the land whence God saved his people. And most of the so-called Jews of that time, not most, but the largest contingent of Jews, were found in Alexandria. Why would these people not leave Alexandria? Because they understood. Scripture is a mental attitude. How you view things, how you view the people around you. That is the message. Because the scriptural story is a parable to invite you to follow a teaching and not a series of statements of facts. The last king of Babylon, his big project was rebuilding the ziggurat in Ur. To imagine that God destroyed that long, long ago in the beginning is a dig against the building project of the kings in the city. Yeah, you know, remember that my thesis in my book is that scripture was produced in mid-third century in the time Alexander, who conquered that area and made Babylon his capital. So the original addressees are the inhabitants of that area. So what you're saying makes the message clearer that the authors decided to mention Ur. Everything fits once we accept that the scriptural story is an instructional story. A mashal, as Ezekiel says, it's silly for Ezekiel to come up with a mashal where three cities, the three sisters, Sodom and Jerusalem, are presented as harlots. I mean, this is ridiculous. So obviously, he's presenting them as a woman, and that's why the new city, Zion, is also presented as being Sarah. I mean, these things were known in those times. But unfortunately, theologies push for individualism and historicization technically destroyed the biblical message. Every small contingent that calls itself a church says, we have the truth, we understand better, and so on. And that's the price we have to pay. In other words, you're splitting again between insider and outsider when the entire Bible is really pushing you in the opposite direction. Throwing you in an area, which is the wilderness, where willy-nilly the sheep just live together, period. Well, Father Paul, fortunately for us and what you've taught us over the years is that the seed contains everything it needs to bear fruit, to make a plant and bear fruit, and the seed does what it does, and the book with the inscription of God's teaching is sitting on the shelf in those various churches, and there is always hope that someone will pick it up, read it, and hear what it's saying. And hopefully people will realize that they are already united in this book. Whether the building has the name of Lutheran Church or Presbyterian Church or Orthodox Church or Catholic Church, the fact that there is this book inside <laughs> is a sign that if we do not have that unity, we seek it. But we don't seek unity through our understanding of Scripture. We seek the unity that is described in Scripture. Father Paul, thank you so much for these discussions, which are invaluable both to Richard and I, and obviously to our listening audience. Well, thank you for your patience with me. <laughs> thank you, okay. Father. Thank you. Thank you. We'll Take meet care. again. Okay. All right. Yes. Bye.
Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.